Okay, good afternoon, folks. Uh, welcome to the council. I was having a little bit of technical difficulties there right now, so, uh, but we got everything online and we're ready to go with the show. Thank you for tuning in to the council today. I am your host, Charlie Pacello, and uh, we've got a fantastic, really important show for you today. Uh, we're going to be talking about rituals and transformation. My guest is absolutely amazing, amazing human being, person, father. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, a lot of really important things today that I think are important for us to have conversations about. Uh, but first, I want to thank my, uh, my, my host here, uh, KUHSDenver.com. KUHSDenver.com. We are broadcasting shows not only here in Denver, Colorado, but all around the country and all around the world. This show is being listened to by people from almost every continent. Uh, and from so many different countries, it really is an honor and a privilege to be here and that you will trust me to bring the best kind of shows that enlighten, inspire, give hope, bring intelligent conversations to very difficult subjects and trying to bring people together, trying to find this, uh, this sense of atonement. Um, atonement is this idea of at onement of, of returning to oneness uh, the idea and the understanding that at the very core and at the very base of us we are at one we are interconnected with everything uh, it's a mystical truth it's an understanding that uh, we come from something much bigger than us and that we are not really separate at the very core even though we may appear separate and different we at our core are very much the same and it's important how do we get to atonement how do we get to the sense where we no longer see people as someone other than us and it really boils down to the process of forgiveness and that process is really difficult you know how do we forgive Aunt alexander pope said to err is human to forgive is divine is that the divinity in us? Is that what we're looking at? Is that what we're trying to touch into? Forgiveness occurs when there's no sense of vengeance, when we don't want to take revenge on anybody else for something that they may have done to us and where we no longer feel that we're a victim of what happened to us. But that takes a lot of effort to get to. And it's really, you know, we hear about, uh, you know, Jesus and Buddha and other people who have found this deep, path that we were able to transcend their suffering and to forgive and to see the illusions in life and the delusions that we get caught up in in our egos and they recognize that the soul was the seat of their power and the individual soul and that the ego was the seat of all of our illusions and delusions and suffering and are there examples of people who have been able to really activate this in their life in 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 their personal life from some of the tragedies and horrors that they may have experienced and I think I may have mentioned this one time in one of my earlier shows there's a movie called the power of the heart which is a fantastic movie and I highly recommend you watch it but there is an example of a woman who uh, in that movie that will just take your breath away where she she had been in the genocide of in uh, Rwanda between the Hutus and the Tutsis and uh, she was one of the ones that was being victimized. They had to hide her and a bunch of women into a bathroom. And they stayed in this bathroom for, you know, 40 or 50 days while this genocide was taking place where these murders, uh, the, the slaughtering of the people. And, you know, they almost, uh, there was a couple times where they almost came to her. They knocked on the door of the, I think it was a pastor who was hiding them. And they almost got discovered and all the fear and terror that those women felt as they were hiding in this bathroom. And she had so much anger and rage and, and, and uh, wanting to take revenge on the people who were doing this. And it was at some point in this time where she was in this isolation with these women that she realized that she was, there was two parts of her that were fighting against one another. There was this very angry, vengeful, retributive part of her that wanted to take bloody revenge against the people doing these things and then there was the this part of her that said you know I, I need to f find a way to love to forgive to move past this and she had this image of seeing the people who were who were filled with hate and animosity and she saw these pictures of 
Hitler and Mao Zedong and Stalin and other people who had you know, committed these horrible atrocities to human beings. And then she saw on the other side pictures like uh, Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Jesus and others who had overcome that and were able to forgive. And she was able to find something inside of her, the power of her own soul. And when she got out of the situation, she did survive it. She wanted to meet her, ex her parents. Her parents got executed. She wanted to meet the executioner of her family. And she went in there and, you know, most, most of the people there were filled with a lot of hate and you could understand why. I think it was 800,000 of, uh, uh, I think it was the Hutus that were murdered. Uh, and, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of <laughs> anger in there and a lot of just wanting an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And she was able to sit across from the, from the man who had executed her parents and was able to forgive truly forgive from an emotional place and was able to free her heart. And it was so powerful to watch and to think, my gosh, um, do I have the power in myself to be able to do that? That was incredible. And she felt like this thing lifting off of her, this, this weight, this weight of this guilt and anger and shame lift off of her. And in some regards, she also set that person who did these things free as well. Another example. Uh, is of Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, Dr. King was at a function and he was about to sit down at this function and it was during the civil rights movement. And a man walked up to him and he asked him, are you Dr. King? Are you Dr. King Jr? And uh, Dr. King said, yes, I am. And this man spat on him. And Dr. King reached down and he pulled out a handkerchief. And he wiped the spittle off of his face and he folded the handkerchief neatly together. And then he handed it back to the man saying, I think this belongs to you. Now, how did he get that kind of like magnanimity of spirit to be able to, I mean, normally someone spits in our face, <laughs> you know, you want to spit back or yell or holler, but to be able to have that recognizing that if you don't, if you give back the insult and you give it back to the person who gave that to you, it belongs to them. It doesn't belong to you. And to kind of have that power of love and forgiveness. Another example is in South Africa, Nelson Mandela invited to sit with him at a banquet. Nelson Mandela was in prison for, uh, I think, 24, 27 years in, uh, in uh, South Africa. And he invited one of the men to, uh, at a banquet who had urinated on him when he was in prison. And he also hired these ex-jailers to act as tour guides and serve as uh, ferry operators when the prison was closed down. And this man had every reason to have hatred in his heart, to have spite, to want to punish his, uh, you know, his jailers and the people who had done these things to him but he chose a different way. And it's just like, what is, in, what is the power that was in there? They were ordinary people. These weren't the people that we read in, our, in, in scripture or in uh, mythological tales. These are real people that were able to find it. And I think it, we have this within us if we really choose it. We always have a choice. We can either feed the animal that wants to be fed, that's all about destruction and vengeance and retribution and anger and vindictiveness and wanting to get back and wanting to punish the other person. Or we can choose the higher road. We can choose to recognize that person's asleep. He doesn't, he or she doesn't know what she's doing. That I'd rather choose kindness, compassion, understanding, turning the other cheek, uh, love, compassion, uh, all those things. and. It's really important to recognize as well that in order for the idea of forgiveness to really take place, it's not just about forgiving the other person. It's also about atonement. And atonement is really the act of forgiveness, remorse, and action in to make amends, to make things right, to restore things to right relationship. And there's a book that I've been reading. It's called Beyond Forgiveness. It's a wonderful book uh, by Phil Cousineau, 
And it's this reflections on atonement, uh, healing the past, making amends, and restoring balance in our lives and world. And there's a, a gentleman who wrote an essay in here. By, his name's Michael Nagler. And he's talking about what is atonement? What is this thing? And he's got several principles which I'd like to um, just illustrate for you, which I think is, you know, uh, what atonement is. And he says there are four principles of atonement. One is to think amorally, abandon revenge and retribu retribution. When the Hebrew Bible has God say, vengeance is mine, it is implied that only God has the wisdom and the detachment to use it when it must be used as an educational tool. Number two, the goal in atonement is to relieve offenders of their guilt and victims of their resentment. And I think that's what you see when those examples with uh, the woman that I described with uh, in Rwanda and uh, the uh, Dr. King and, Martin and Nelson Mandela, they were trying to relieve the offenders of their guilt and be, no longer have resentment uh, towards them themselves. And number three, atonement is about the restoration of relationships. This holds true at whatever level we approach the healing process, interpersonal, international, or intersocial. And the latter being when, where the struggling restorative justice movement is based and precisely on relationship work in opposition to the retributive work of the present system. We're looking to restore right relationship. And the last thing is action. Action as well as emotion must be part of the healing process. You've got to take action. You've got to mean it. You've got to have a genuine empathy, a genuine desire to make amends, to make things right. Because you can't change what happened yesterday. You can't. You can't go back. And, and I, when I coach people or, or work with people, I always tell them, you can't go back to what happened yesterday. You can't change those things. But what you can do is, is what are you going to do now? What are you going to do now with what's in front of you? Are you going to carry that anger forward because you're going to be the one that carries that? You're going to be the one that suffers from it. You're the one that's going to be in pain. Or are you going to be able to turn this into something that is a blessing? That's up to you. It's really, really up to you, and you've, and you've got to, and if you have made wrong against another human being, you've got to do whatever you can to make amends, to bring right relationship with the person that you may have offended. And they may not receive it, but it's about you doing it anyway, and that's part of the process. So anyway, some of those things, some of the things that I want to, to you know, begin this conversation that we have with our guest today, he is... An amazing human being. I met him at, um, at a retreat for veterans and uh, first responders uh, back in October. And uh, first, when I first met uh, Father Jim, I was, uh, I was immediately drawn to him and wanted to <clears throat> talk to him about all sorts of things and uh, to invite him onto the show. So I'm so excited to have him here. Uh, Father Clark has an extensive academic background in the field of spirituality adult education, counseling, ritual, and depth psychology. Uh, he currently serves as the Director of New Evangelization of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles and is an Associate Spiritual Director of the Cardinal Manning House of Prayer for Priests. He is also a Senior Lecturer in the Theological Studies Department at Loyola, Loyola Marymount University. He is the author of a brand new book, Creating Rituals, A New Way of Healing for Everyday Life, and Soul-Centered Spirituality for People on the Go. Uh, he also has published CD-DVD series, uh, The Way to God, a, Gu a Guide for Men, and A Spirituality for the Modern Individual, which serves to enhance his continuing public ministries of retreats, workshops, and conferences throughout the United States, uh, for priests, women, religious, seminarians, parish, and school staffs, as well as the parishes at large. Father Clark, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here with you. Thanks, Charlie. Uh, it's such an honor, uh, Father Clark. It's uh, you know, I um, when I first met you, I just uh, admired your 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 comp uh, compassion, your dedication, uh, the sincerity and genuineness that I found in your heart. I was wondering, could you share with the audience just a little bit about your background and just why you became a priest? Why, why did you choose to follow that path? Sure. Um, well, to be honest with you, I was minding my own business, <laughs> going to college, and had plans to become a general contractor. 
And um, I decided in the midst of it all to take a battery of tests to see if I was on the right track. And I ended up scoring quite high in the area of social services as well as religion. And so my college counselor recommended I take a look at that. So I, I began to look at being a Catholic, uh, feeling a call to being a priest. And several, uh, shall we call them coincidences, came together where I began to take this call seriously. And interesting enough, coincidentally, different people in my life, not family members, as a matter of fact, but friends and fellow parishioners began just to mention, you ever thought about being a priest? And uh, so I was dating a wonderful young woman at the time. I thought we might get married, but uh, obviously God had different plans. So after a period of discernment, uh, about a year or so, I began to realize that, yeah, it was an authentic calling. And so that desire of wanting to help people or to serve people has never left me. And that was the main reason that I, I said yes to uh, wanting to, to serve as a priest. So... Wow, that's so beautiful. That's just one of those callings that comes into your heart, and you just know it. And that's the following. That's the calling you have to have. And uh, you know, it's such a. And when you have that calling to serve a higher purpose, and a lot of veterans have that as well, when they're called to serve yeah. their country or their nation, uh, something larger than themselves. It's a profound, um, uh, you know, feeling inside, and uh, it's a commitment that uh, it's very hard to describe. And uh, you want yeah. to serve those people. What was your Absolutely. been your greatest memory or most satisfying experience since becoming a priest? Well, actually, it would be like a collage of memories. And for me, as in the years of being a priest, now it's been 37 years, um, I've been most moved by and humbled by hearing people's confessions and uh, being in the role of spiritual director. So hearing, if you will, that the secrets, the struggles, the pains, uh, the questions and doubts of human beings and be able to remind people of how deeply loved they are by God and that they are forgiven. They can live a life of freedom and joy if they choose to do that by being able to put these life's mistakes and struggles in perspective, you know, against a, a tremendous ocean of love that is much greater than we can even dream about. Mm -hmm. So that's been the most powerful thing. And just really reaching out to people and praying for and observing people being healed um, it's been a very moving experience and just continues to deepen my love not only the Lord but to to recognize how true this is have you ever experienced or watched healings happen uh, oh know, yes spontaneous yeah. healing yes spontaneous healing yeah physical emotional relational Wow. it's almost magical it's amazing wow. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, I think those spontaneous healings are, you know, it's something that's beyond, it comes from the soul. I think yes. healing truly happens in the soul. You know, when we're dealing yes. with emotional issues or psychological issues and, you know, some of the challenges I had in my life, I recognized that when they were deep soul wounds, you had to go into the soul to heal it. I couldn't understand why people didn't heal. Why was why was there such a struggle? For and uh, it's I think because we're not dealing with the issues in the soul, we're afraid to go there. And uh, but if you do, the power of it is in, incredible. It will it will transform. Yeah. Now, Father, in my opening monologue, <clears throat> excuse me, I spoke about the process of forgiveness and atonement. And identified a couple examples where this practice has been implemented successfully. How important is forgiveness and the acts of atonement for an individual? And why do you think it's so hard for us humans to forgive? Oh, boy, that's a great question. It's the heart of being human. Uh, forgiveness is a necessary part of being human. Um, yes, it's absolutely necessary for the simple reason... Forgiveness is a biblical word that very simply means to let go, to release. And so we choose not to forgive. It's like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. And obviously that doesn't happen. So to continue to carry around bitterness, resentment, desire for revenge is detrimental to ourself. And so in order for us to move towards that place of authentic forgiveness, we have to find ways and means that work for us. It's not just a decision. That's, that's the first step. Make the decision to say, okay, I'm tired of hurting. I want to move forward. But then to really using our imagination as well as some sort of embodied practice, we're able to move that next step so that we can finally say, okay, I'm done with this. And then finally, 
the word that we use in our Christian tradition is to move that place of atonement at one moment. It's another word for reconciliation, to be reconciled. And it may not be at the same level. Perhaps trust has been broken. But at least there's a sense of accepting that this is the reality of where we're at. And to, uh, to also honor the fact that these steps that move us from forgiveness to that place of atonement are necessary if we're to find some measure of joy and harmony in our life. Well, it is that harmony that we're looking for, and that's, uh, and it really begins in us. You know, it's that part of us that you know, if we really understand ourselves, um, that desire in us to seek revenge, that desire in us that seeks retribution and vengeance. That's the that's the predator in us. That's yes. the darkness in us, and that's what we have to understand. That's what we have to acknowledge. That's what we have to accept. It's when we deny it that it gets perverted and it shows up in all kinds of shadow, you know, expressions in the world and in ourselves. We project it out. And, you know, I, I think uh, one of the highest things that a person can do is to own their own shadow, to own their own darkness, because then you're acknowledging, wow, this is within me. And I if I continue to act from a place of violence, I'm only adding to more violence into the world. It's just innate, it's just the laws. It's the laws of, 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 uh, that God made, you know? It's just the laws. If I add more kindness to the world, I'm gonna bring more kindness to the world. Yeah. What are the qualities, Father, that you look for and characteristics you look for in those who are called to serve God? And what is the code of conduct you expect of the clergy to uphold and why? Well, you know, I spent 14 years as what we call in our profession a formator, meaning that I, I worked as a faculty member helping to train young men to become priests, and it was quite an honor. So these are the qualities that we look for for priests, lay leaders, those who really want to work in caring for the body of Christ. First off is they have a real love for Jesus. Mm -hmm. uh, if that's not there, it's not going to sustain them in times of real struggle and darkness. Uh, secondly is a deep faith. A deep faith, for example, in God who, who loves them without end and recognizes that can sustain them in difficult and challenging times, what I call the swamplands of life. Third is a real pastoral sense, uh, a sense of compassion, and the skills to be able to express that to the other person or to the group. We also look for the ability to embrace the human condition as it is to accept reality, that it's a mixture of glory and grime. It's, it's, it's a grayness. It's not always black or white. But to accept that, not only in general, but in particular reality, beginning with oneself, so that they can turn do that for another. Mm -hmm. And finally, to accept one's own limitations, mm -hmm. that we're not God, right. you know, and to recognize we're limited in our time, our skills, our abilities, and to really practice that gift of being present, not only to the limitations, but to who and to what is before us. And doing that with a real measure of mature compassion, to me, is, is a sign of an effective minister of the good news. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that uh, those are the qualities that anybody who wants to follow God in, in, in follow Jesus in those ways, that's what they need. And unfortunately, there's been some challenges the church has been facing. Uh, you know, when I, I asked you to come on uh, the, this, this program, I asked if you and I could have a conversation about some of the challenges that the church is having. And, uh, you know, I shared with you my travels to Rome and Lebanon, and now I got to meet and actually got to shake hands with Pope Francis and, uh, um, and meet with him and one-on-one. -on -one. And... Uh, you know, I, uh, there's, uh, I love the church. There's a lot of things that I love about the Catholic Church. I was raised Catholic. Uh, it was confirmed in it. Um, but the church has been um, bombarded with all of these, the child sex abuse crisis that has overrun it. It's an international situation, crisis. And there's been numerous reports of child sexual abuse by the clergy over the last few decades. And this is something that is, uh, you know, some of the reports are really, really disturbing. Yes. And uh, it's, it's a personal issue with me because uh, um, you know, I, was, uh, I, was, uh, I was molested by a priest and, um, who wanted to make sexual advances towards me. And uh, he wanted to be lovers. And it was the most uncomfortable situation I'd ever been in my entire life. And uh, it, um, 
I was able to get out of the situation because I was an adult. Um, and I was able to handle this very uncomfortable situation. Um, and uh, it was very, <laughs> oh my gosh, it was um, shocking. You know, there was a violation. There was an anger. There was a rage that I felt that had been, that some sacred honor had been violated. And uh, that there was some, uh, something that was wrong, <laughs> deeply wrong and troubling about it. And I was able to remove myself because I was an adult. And uh, however, there are thousands of youths and children who were not able to. Father, it breaks my heart when priests and clergy do this. All right? They have violated their sacred honor and their authority uh, to engage in these types of behaviors. As much I love about the Catholic Church is not one of them. And Father, could you please address this issue and what the Catholic Church is now doing to rectify this situation, to ensure children and others are safe, and to bring comfort and restorative justice to those that have been harmed. Yeah. Well, thank you for introducing a very difficult topic. And first off, I'd like to say, Charlie, is I'm very sorry to hear about your experience. Um, it's tragic tragic, the, the whole thing from beginning to end. Uh, like you, uh, I share not only your own anger and sadness and sense of betrayal, but the desire for wanting to move forward in a, a healthy, forgiving way. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my own brothers was molested by a layman from the church uh, who was well-respected, so it's, it's something that's, that's very personal for me. So, one of the things that makes this whole issue um, not only painful and uncomfortable is that it has forever changed our image of the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. and for many of us, our image of God, is that so often we look upon God as a strength and sustainer, one who is always present, and as we listen to the stories of victims, they say just the opposite. God wasn't present to me. Where, where was God? How come God wasn't there? How come God didn't protect me? So a question that that I would like to share with our listeners is, is it possible at this dark time in human history, both in our country and in our church, that God is revealing God's self to us as one who is vulnerable, one who is standing with the victims, one who at so many ways and means is inviting us to look at victims of all different ages, different cultures, different situations, to say this is where we need to listen at this time in human history. And as we look at the victimizers, we see that the pain at some deep level is mutual, that they're caught in systems that seem to be heartless. So we call it clericalism or misuse or abuse of power, that the three painful deeds of denial, deceit, and denigration of the human person inflict this pain an ongoing infliction of the pain on victims. Sometimes it's verbal, sometimes it's emotional, psychological. Other times it is physical and sexual. But be that as it may, you're right, it needs to end. Mm -hmm. So as with all these painful things, we have an opportunity to be able to dig through the ashes and say, what is the meaning of this? What is God saying to us? How can we move forward? So there are no easy answers. I, I really... Um, say that. But one of the things that the U.S. bishops have done back in 2002 is to create a plan for what they call zero tolerance, meaning that not willing to put up or to continue uh, business as usual. So what this means is that there is a whole process in place in each the diocese in this country. Okay, Part of the reason for the meeting that the Pope called for the presence of every single Episcopal conference in the world was to be able to discuss how are we as an entire global church going to move forward. So that's not just one different Episcopal conference or one different country doing their own thing. So I'm going to speak just from the Archdiocese of Los Angeles because this is where I live and I work and minister. What you put in, in place is what many dioceses have put in place. It's called Clergy Misconduct Oversight Board. We call it CMOB for short. And this process the way it works, the members of the, of the, the board are made up of a, a single priest, and then we have, in our particular diocese, retired 
uh, lay judge, retired FBI agent, two or three individual, uh, all lay people, a psycho- two psychologists, and together they, they look at these cases and they're, they're presented anonymously and they look at the facts. They look at the facts. So these men and women together to discern, is this a credible allegation? That's the first thing. If the answer is yes, then they, they dig through the whole case and they decide, should this person be removed from ministry? And or should they be sent to uh, some sort of what we call intensive therapy? Is there a possibility for them to return to ministry? If the answer is no, then they are removed from ministry. Sometimes it's temporary, sometimes it's permanent. And the final thing is they're laicized. If there's no hope for recovery or change in their criminal behavior or in their way of looking at themselves. Mm-hmm. So um, these type of things have been proven to work. But here's the difficulty. Sometimes when people have been victimized, they repress those memories in order to be able to get on with life, what we call survival mechanism. Mm-hmm. As a result, it's only when people begin, other people begin to share their stories that they begin to remember pieces. And this is what we're hearing in the news, whether it's the secular media or the ecclesial media, that these are people who for years have repressed or denied the memory, and now they realize, oh my God, it happened to me too. So they're coming forward with past struggles, trying to find either reconciliation, healing, forgiveness. Every diocese has in place what is called a victim's assistance program. That when these individuals come forward and make their allegation, they are offered immediate therapy or whatever they need to be able to help them move through life and to, uh, to make things at some level better for them, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. It's not always according to the way that an individual would hope or dream but at this point, each diocese is trying to do their best. And I'll be very honest, we have a long way to go. Uh, one of the areas we can prove in is in more dioceses, and especially throughout the world, is to involve credible, talented, professional laymen and women in these situations, not only of discerning how to go or how to respond. This will help deflate what some people have called the, the boys' club. Uh, the, the clerical culture of keeping things secret or confidential, and it would open it up to a real community discernment of how to deal with this global issue. Mm-hmm. Well, I think those are, uh, sounds like those are really important steps, effective steps, and I appreciate yeah. you being uh, so candid about some of the things that the church is doing and uh, you know, being able to address something that is so challenging. And, but we need to have those conversations, Father. We need to have Absolutely. those. It's when we hide it. It's when we cover yeah. it up. It's when we deny it. It's when we lie about it. It's when we're dece- we, we brush it aside. That's when we're, we're playing with our own darkness again. That doesn't yes. allow for the healing and transformation and atonement to occur. It has to be exposed. It has to be revealed, as painful as it is. The soul loves the truth. The soul loves the truth. It is a... It is a um, uh, a, a, a heat-seeking missile towards the truth. <laughs> it's it's about truth there, and uh, we can't set ourselves free if we don't speak the truth. Maybe see, we have to start by speaking our personal truth. This is my truth, and then get to speaking the truth. But we have to start having the courage and the strength to be able to say it and to expose ourselves to those things. But that's the only way I believe, Father, that true healing can happen. And that the church can get back to being the ministers of what Christ was all about. And, and that was about, you know, love and forgiveness and, and yeah. charity towards all. Um, do you think the Pope and the Cardinals are doing enough to help with this? They just had recently had a, um, a con- congregation last week, I guess it was in uh, somewhere. Did some things that come out of that, that, uh, you know, to help uh, the clergy to uphold the other office and start following the precepts of Christ? Yes. I, I wouldn't say they're doing enough. I would say that they've begun to take the first few steps. Mm-hmm. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, and you hit it on the, the nail on the head there, Charlie, is that the first step is for these men of religious power to really begin to listen to listen and to have conversations with the victims. Mm -hmm. Because it's only when heart speaks to heart that something can break through. Mm -hmm. Uh, For many years, they've been operating with what we call a legal mindset, and have forgotten the very topic you're talking about. 
that it's different when you come with a pastoral sense and a, and a desire not only for forgiveness, but you can't rush to forgiveness and you can't rush to restorative justice. It takes time. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the tools of this is the conversation of hearing the story being told as often as it needs to be told mm-hmm. so that truly there can be a way forward together. I like the word that Pope Francis is using. He's calling it accompaniment, walking with the victims, mm-hmm. and to be able to, to move forward with that sense that, uh, you know, we can't do this top-down thing anymore. It's, it's got to be be equal, that mm-hmm. we all share in the human shadow. Mm-hmm. We all share in, in being limited creatures. And to name, when it's a crime, it's a crime. You know, it's not just a, a failure. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a whole different mechanism to look at it with, as you said, honesty deep humility, uh, and a fortitude to be willing to wade through these dark waters as long as it takes until every person been victimized truly finds some sense of reconciliation and healing. Father, how is this impacting the lives? I mean, because not all priests are this, you know, I mean, it becomes a, a dark stereotype and we're on the verge of and, and it's 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 a, it's an archetypal thing. Priests and rabbis and uh, other uh, you know ministers towards the divine and God were the the carriers of the soul. They move the soul through from this life into the next life. Well, now we're having this thing where the priests are becoming the demons and the demons are becoming the saviors. Uh, in the culture, we we ex- we extol things like vampires. I mean, they're in our culture. Yeah. You see that with all the things yeah. about what this idea for immortality, this idea that you know this is the preserving of the body. Zombies, you know, they're all over the place. You see these things, television shows, and there's there's something that uh, we we're we're making a major error if we don't correct this now by saying, okay, wait a second here, let's get our arms around this, let's get this, you know, before it gets too big, it's already big enough, let's all right, but let's not, let's remember that what the proper role is, and the vast majority of people who are called into the Catholic Church and other faiths, they're good people, they are good people, they're good priests, they're good bishops who want to do that work, and this is also in other faiths as well, so how do we avoid making that tragic error? of labeling all the priests as child sex offenders, which is not true, and bring truth and honesty and clarity and trust back into that social contract between the clergy and the people they serve? Great question. Well, you alluded to it earlier. Uh, The simplest answer I'd give to that is that each one of us would name and own our own shadow material. Because if we don't do that, then we're going to project it all onto other, whoever other is. In this case, like you said, it's the group of Catholic clergy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So these new mythological expressions that you alluded to, you know, vampires and zombies, and even things like Star Wars and whatnot, all of them are ways that contemporary human beings are grappling with the struggles of being human in this particular century. So vampires symbolize our life being sucked out of us. Zombies, the whole idea of that we're not really alive, we're dead inside, you know? The whole idea of the new myth of outer space, the desire to escape and desire for more adventure and discovering our capacities, that actually we are not limited. All of these are wonderful ways that we can look at if we look at the themes, not just caught up, get caught up in the actors and actresses. In a similar way, this clergy abuse scandal invites us, and I know this is a tough thing to hear, invites all of us. How are we harming others? Mm -hmm. How are we disconnected from our our soul in such a way that we're harming our environment? Mm -hmm. We're we're hurting our relationships, that we've forgotten what it means to be human, what it means to be a beloved daughter or son of God. Mm -hmm. These are deep and important questions we all have to answer, but we don't want to really face those. Then you're right. We'll be pointing the finger for a long time and saying, it's not me, Mm -hmm. it's all of them. Mm But it, it does take maturity. It takes a, a humble willingness to, to look in the mirror and say, yeah, that person's me too in a different way, but I share in this darkness as well. And I, I too need to be part of the response to this that can liberate all human beings. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's, uh, you know, when we're able to have that kind of depth of honesty and clarity with each other, 
and to uh, take a little step back and recognize that we are human. We are. We can err. It's uh, the human. Uh, to err is human. To forgive is divine. Yeah. I mean, that's and that's what it's calling for us to be able to do as well. Uh, quickly, we are broadcasting live on www.kuhsdenver.com. That's kuhsdenver.com. Uh, we are broadcasting here in Broomfield, Colorado, to all across the state, all across the nation, and all around the world. I hope you are enjoying this uh, show as much as I am. We are uh, really uh, opening our hearts to a deeper dynamic within us. And I think that it's so vitally important that we do that. Father, I want to move on to another area. So thank you for, so, for answering some of those questions. It's, uh, I want to get into your work, your, your book. And, um, you know, uh, you recently published a book called Creating Rituals, A New Way of Healing for Everyday Life. Father, why is it so important for us to create rituals? Ah, one of my great topics. Um, for the simple reason that we're hardwired as human beings for rituals. For over 70,000 years, human beings have been creating rituals. And the reason we create rituals is because of four primary reasons. One is when we are in a time of transition, we need to recognize that I'm leaving something for something else. Another area is the need to let go. So that's why this topic of forgiveness and atonement is so important that rituals really are very helpful in the forgiveness process. Third is when we're stuck in what are called impasses between two or three or more opportunities. And finally, when there's an emotional intensity going on, things like anger or violent aggressive behavior or depression or deep sadness, um, those are the four traditional times when rituals have been used by human beings, whether in tribal contexts family context or individual context but uh, yes very much rituals are important now here's the, the key when we choose not to create rituals then what happens is our life becomes a ritual hmm. we find that we can slip into addictive compulsive behavior for example or repetitive habits or behavior patterns uh, we can also slip into doing the same thing over and over again and wondering, why, why are we stuck? How come I'm not moving forward? Mm -hmm, yeah. That's how much ritual is a part of our life. And here's another insight. Rituals are what we call an archetype. Now, an archetype is to the human soul what the five senses are to the body. It's a way of reading reality. And we read reality through images. So this particular archetype has what we call layers of expression. So things like habits, mm -hmm. which assist movement throughout our life, routines, which bestow a measure of internal comfort, or ritualizing behaviors, which give us order, or ceremonies, which mark times of accomplishment or completion. And finally, rituals, what we call the highest level or the most uh, energetic level, and that is all about transformation. Mm -hmm. I think it's fascinating when, uh, you know, when you think about, uh, you, know, when we, you mentioned the word archetypes. Archetypes are these power patterns that exist in all of us. We yes. all have these power patterns. You, when, you, when you think of a priest, you already have it. You know ding, the download comes right in. If you think of a king, boom, download. You already know what the features are, the qualities, characteristics. A warrior, boom, you already know it. And these things, these patterns, these power patterns, they are, you know, they influence our soul. We all have a certain sequence of patterns that exist within us. And they do. They are, they are the blueprints that, are, that activate, that animate our soul's contract yes. that we come in with. And when you can understand those archetypes, it's such a powerful thing. You can really start to animate what is the full expression, what is the best expression of this. But how when we're doing rituals of the myth i mean this goes right into myth you know these archetypes were myth mythological stories can you share with our audience what is a myth what makes us what separates a myth and how do rituals and myths work together uh great question okay well a myth is truer than true it, it is a big story it's uh, like a creation story or a goal story um it's a story that lasts for the ages so we have cultural myths, we have the myths that are germane to each religion, 
we have uh, myths that speak about deep truths that are passed on from one family to another. We have uh, national myths, you know. All of these are ways of trying to express, express deeper truths. Now, a ritual very simply takes a myth and it translates it into a concise, meaningful, symbolic expression. So Eliade, very famous anthropologist, calls it recreating a new cosmos for ourselves. In that as we work with that, we're creating a new opportunity. Now here's something I want our listeners to remember. The human soul makes no distinction between ritual and reality. Both are viewed metaphorically. So I don't mean to upset anyone here, but let me give you a very, very emotionally challenging one. Suicide, from the perspective of the soul, is a ritual. But it's reality. So what that particular action is saying, I need this pain to end. I can't stand this anymore. So the soul is trying to inform the intellect to say, you need to do something to be able to stop this, because this is going to kill you. Unfortunately, because we haven't been, shall we say, educated to the reality of the interior life very well, most of us translate that literally, and then we end up doing harm to our body. And so the real invitation the soul is trying to say, using the metaphor, the archetype of suicide, is to say something needs to end. Something needs to, I put this in quotes, to die. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's an invitation in order the person can move on to a new life, to move beyond this impasse. Mm -hmm. So again, the language of the soul is symbolic and metaphorical. It loves to use images and symbols. And why it would be so strong in helping our people to really get to know and to practice ritual making. It will not only heal and liberate people, but will help them live with a deeper, meaningful hope and joy and love in their life. Well, I think that's so, you know, important to recognize that, you know, the, the language of the soul, like you were just saying, is, is symbolic. It's metaphorical. It's, it, it's not literal. But sometimes we often make the mistake of making it a literal thing. Yeah. And when you understand, and you're so right, we don't have that, uh, those conversations or the education about that interior landscape. You know, yeah. the scaffolding of the soul. I think it was uh, St. Teresa of Avila had a, uh, uh, where she did a, wrote a book about the, the, the castle of the soul or something where yes. she was having that, uh, the, the mansions of the soul. And we don't have those kinds of conversations. We're too external and we're not internal. And I think well, some of the things that we're having is this, the, the soul is calling us back and it's trying to reach us in ways to alert us. And sometimes people are making the error to take something literally when they need to take it symbolically and metaphorically. Yes. And that's the power of rituals. But what makes a ritual so powerful that they can lead an individual to transformation? What makes it powerful, as you alluded to it, is that you're honoring the energy that's already present in the human soul. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, ceremonies often get overinflated and people mix the two up. But ceremonies are not about transformation. They're more like an affirmation of accomplishment, you know? Think of graduation ceremonies, think of vigil ceremonies. Even the language of anthropologists about weddings is called a wedding ceremony. Mm -hmm. So ritual is different. Ritual is about recognizing there's something here that needs to be addressed. How can I find a helpful way of honoring it so I can release the power that's already there, okay? So when authentic rituals are not created, then what we call shadow or parallel rituals are set up. Things like gang initiations, uh, even war is a form of ritual. Divorce proceedings, domestic violence, uh, addictive compulsive behavior, suicide. These are all what we could call shallow or parallel rituals that are set up. Now, some anthropologists have pointed out that the bankruptcy of ritual expression alludes to a cultural decay. That when we do what you were talking about, when we repress our trauma, when we repress the truth or we deny it, it's then given expression through symbolic language and psychosomatic illness. Mm. 
because the body is trying to wake the soul up and vice versa is that ritual brings together body soul and spirit in a way that honors the whole experience of being human so for me i have found that rituals are a wonderful gateway in helping people to allow these truths to be expressed in a wholesome uh, community or environment. So here are some things real quickly that make up a good ritual. One is uh, time needs to be set aside in a place where you won't be interrupted, where you can find a way and mean of uh, saying what you need to say. The Native Americans uh, in this particular country say that what makes a good ritual, an effective ritual, is 90% preparation. Mm. Secondly is the ritual practitioner needs to have a focused attention. You can't be distracted. You can't do this between you know the second quarter and the third quarter. It has to be a focused attraction. <laughs> <Right>. Okay. <laughs> Next thing is use few symbols. Don't bring your whole toy chest. What is a, a single symbol or a couple of symbols that represent for you what it is you need to express. Fourth, use few words. You're not giving a speech. Speeches belong to ceremonies. That's one of the ways you can tell. Is it a ritual mm-hmm. or is it a ceremony? So think of the Christian ritual, the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Jesus didn't give a speech from the cross. He said it's finished. Mm-hmm. He got it right to the point. And the symbol is the cross. Next is the witness, witnessing community. Who's, who's going to witness this for you? Who's going to be a mirror for you that this is what you've done? I'm going to remind you of this. Mm-hmm. So at the foot of the cross, it was a small witnessing community there. Mm-hmm. Next is an embodied action. You can't do a ritual in your head. You can't just think it through. You can't just use your imagination. So it has to be embodied. Are you going to march? Are you going to kneel down? Are you going to bow? Are you going to throw something? Are you going to burn something? All of these are... Very common traditional way, ritualizing in an embodied form what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And finally, this is the one that most of us want to skip, especially if we're nice people. Mm-hmm. We must engage the shadow, like you've been talking about, mm-hmm. Charlie. Yeah. To gaze the shadow means to engage the polar opposites, to engage the polar opposites. In other words, I may love this person, but right now, man, I, I hate this person, mm-hmm. you know? Or I, I really love the church, like you said, but... I hate what's happening in the church right now. Mm-hmm. So how do you find a symbol and the words and the expression that can honor that? Very often it's something dramatic. It might even be something that goes against your cultural sense or your religious sense. Mm-hmm. But to say and to do that in the sacred time and space can be so healing, so healing. It's, uh, you know, I think when we're, you know, you described uh, brilliantly. I mean, that's just brilliant <laughs> what you described and how to be able to do that. And, and really, you know, I mean, our ancestors did these, you know, they, there was a reason why to be able to make contact. They lived in that space where, you know, heaven wasn't that far away. You know, there was almost direct immediate contact. And it's only when we entered this age of reason about, you know, what, 600 years ago that we started to move further and further away and they lost that mystical contact, that direct contact. And it's these rituals that invited back in where, like you're saying, you know, you're crossing that liminal space. That liminal space is moving into the, the sacred realm and you're coming into that place beyond time, beyond space, and you are transformed by it. What are the steps, Father, that um, are, are uh, excuse me, how, you know, you described the, the, the steps to effective rituals. How does a transformation happen to the practitioner? Does their intention matter? Um, and what if the person doesn't believe in God or has no faith whatsoever in the divine? Great question, Charlie. Uh, first, I'll start with the second question. No, you don't need to be religious. Uh, even if you don't believe in God, this is a, a human construct. Like I said, this goes way back to our earliest ancestors. They, they found that this was a necessity as a way of being able to move away from the past to live in the present. Secondly, yes, there are some very traditional uh, ways of being able to make this happen. First thing is mindful preparation. You don't want to do this as a sideline. You want to have a real focus. Give yourself some days, perhaps even weeks, to plan and prepare for what you want to express. You'll know you're ready when you can say it in one sentence. 
I want to honor the fact that I'm different. It's like a midlife ritual. I know one guy, what he did is he planned to have the ritual in the mountains at a friend's cabin. And he wore some old clothes that were his favorite. And what he did is he stripped down to nothing, threw the clothes in a pile, and he burned them. And then he put on clothes that matched his age. He said, I'm no longer a young man anymore. I'm a man in midlife. The second thing is a conscious, focused attention. So here's a simple thing to remember. Keep it simple. That's it. It's not a big production. You know, it's keeping it simple. Third, where do you want it to take place and when? Where do you want it to take place and when? I did a ritual with one of my brothers who went through a very, very painful, acrimonious divorce. And it took him almost a year to be able to say he was ready. And so he asked me, his older brother, along with two other brothers, to be the witnessing community. What we had him do was to to go through what I would call a a human tunnel. Victor Turner calls this a uh, a birth-death tunnel. Mm -hmm. And he crawled through the tunnel, but we made it very hard for him. We kind of tightened up the tunnel to let him know, you got to work for your life there, dude. <laughs> and typical brothers, typical brothers, we were encouraging him and we were swearing at him. We were doing everything. And we said, come on, you can do this. We're fighting for you and with you, but we're not going to make it easy. And this liminal space and time, we could feel his body relax when he was about ready to give up. And we knew that was wrong with him, is that he wanted to die. And finally, he kicked into another gear. He's a big, strong man, but... He came out of that that tunnel, and he did a little rocky dance when he came out. And uh, I got to tell you that that pretty good ritual changed his life. Three months later, he met his future wife, and they're they're madly in love, been married for over five years. So rituals open up what's been stuck into the possibility of new life. The fourth thing is you have to choose a multivocal, meaningful symbol. You know what it means. That's what's important. So like your old college sweatshirt, you know, or a trophy or your wedding band. What is it that, oh, my God, this, this has so much meaning for it. And what are you going to do with it? You're going to saw it up, throw it in the ocean, bury it, burn it. Or are you going to raise it up and honor it? Next thing, what do you need to say to the universe? You know, it's not going to be a speech. It will come from your gut. And it will come out maybe in sobs or tears or deep anger or maybe deep shame. Or maybe you're going to whisper it. But find your voice and speak it out. And then what are you going to do? You're going to walk? You're going to march? You're going to kneel down? But do something that reverences the truth of your expression. Mm-hmm. The other thing, who do you want to witness this? Friends, family, one person, many people? Mm-hmm. Or are you going to have the animal community be your witness or creation at large? Mm-hmm. And finally, the toughest one in my experience in working with religious people is how do you engage the shadow? Mm-hmm. So that if you're not a swearing person, maybe it means you use swear words. Mm-hmm. Or maybe if you're not an artistic person, you, tr- you try drawing out your pain. But you, you speak it out or you act it out in ways that may feel really uncomfortable for you. I know when I acted out my pain, as a priest about the clergy abuse scandal, uh, it was a very powerful thing and, and destroying something sacred as a way of expressing what happened inside of me, that something sacred broke inside of me mm-hmm. through my own tears and sense of shame mm-hmm. and sharing in this and being a priest. Mm-hmm. Um, but what makes ritual transformative is competent preparation and performance as the shadow is consciously engaged. So Charlie, you're absolutely right. It's about a full conscious intention, keeping it simple, and finding that way and mean that honors the depth of your pain so that you can be released from it. Mm-hmm. And it's so liberating, you know. <clears throat> Anything that's liberating, that this, it, it brings, uh, a, a, you feel a power within you that you didn't feel before, a strength within you that you didn't feel before. There is a sense of having reemerged back into life uh, for, a, for another metaphor. Uh, the phoenix uh, dies, you know, yeah. is burned in the fire and yeah. it does rise back up again. And even though that part, even the phoenix doesn't know it's going to rise back up again, but it does. And when you go through these rituals and you, and you are in, transformed by it, you do come back up wiser, better, healthier, more loving, more compassionate, yeah. and uh, a better human being. 
You really do. And, but we have to engage that shadow. We have to engage that darkness within us. <clears throat> oh, Father, I can't believe it's uh, it, um, almost at the end of the show. Do you have a couple more minutes just to finish up before? Sure. Uh, just a quick announcement. Uh, we are broadcasting live here, the council on KUHSDenver.com. KUHSDenver.com. I just want to thank KUHS for everything, for allowing this show to happen and to making uh, the council possible. We are broadcasting here all around the world and tune into this station. They're the best people, best programs, uh, and some fantastic music. So watch, the, watch KUHS Denver. Um, Father, just a couple, a couple last questions. Do you think that our culture suffers from a dearth of, the, of ritual expression? And how can individuals bring this understanding and wisdom to their everyday lives? You know, it's easy to, you know, when they're with a priest or a rabbi or somebody else. How can they bring it to their everyday life? Oh, good question. Yes, I do believe we, we uh, suffer from a dearth of ritual expression that most people don't know how to deal in a helpful, liberating way to release that dark energy so that it doesn't control one and keep one stuck in the past. So um, whenever someone has gone through deep pain and suffering, the traditional response to help them is some sort of ritual expression. Uh, my cousin was killed in the Twin Towers tragedy, 9-11. And I was very, very angry and saddened that not only our political, but also religious leaders didn't step forward and say, wait a second, we need to really, as a nation, spend some serious time reflecting, praying, and discerning. How can we really honor this entire tragedy? Where, where can we go? So we, what we were left with was a very simplistic, shallow ritual of waving little flags and lighting little vigil candles. Mm -hmm. To me, that was an utter shame and really did not respect the deep tragedy nor the pain and suffering of many of us who lost loved ones, let alone the whole nation. It took me a while, but I invited a close friend of mine. We flew to New York and we did a ritual of what I call contemporary station of the cross. We walked around the entire Ground Zero, praying, reading the names of all the deceased, reflecting on those times. It was only then, after doing that ritual, that I could finally release and forgive and move forward and find some sort of reconciliation. Mm -hmm. So yes, both personally, communally, and nationally, we don't know how to do it. Can we do it on our own? Yes. It takes discipline. It takes practice. A lot of it's going to be, you know, uh, hit and miss. But to, for example, how do you... How do you say goodbye to a young adult when they leave for college? Mm -hmm. Do you say, oh, goodbye, keep warm, well fed, call when you need help? <laughs> That's a perfect time for a ritual. Or the opposite, when they come back home. A, a ritual of, okay, you're different, we're different, we need to work this out, you know, so that we're not going to be hurting each other. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, rituals are all about honoring the transitions, impasses, stuck places in our life. And just to begin to see that and to respond to that and say, you know, I mean, this, this may sound silly, but what do you think about doing this? And you'd be surprised. We'll say, well, that sounds good. Mm -hmm. You don't even need to use the word ritual. Just say, I'd like to honor this special moment, and but think about it ahead of time. Mm -hmm. I think that's brilliant. And I think, you know, we do it uh, on our own anyway, and we don't even recognize we're doing it. Yeah. And it's just if we could draw attention to those things. You know, when you have a significant, you hadn't seen a friend in a long time, and yeah. you reunite and you, you know, sometimes for guys, you know, they would go and have a, a drink together. And I'm not recommending that, but that there is something symbolic of, of, of uh, if we could take that recognition that we're reuniting in those ways and honoring those transitions that we've been through together. And we just uh, pay a little bit more attention. We can bring back those things that are already held into our, our, our unconscious mind because our ancestors did it. Our ancestors were deeply, deeply connected to these rituals. And it helps us to bring a, a wider sense, a wider angle, and open our hearts to that which is larger than all of us. It makes that connection start to happen. Then you get just a little string. All you need is a little string, and then it becomes a thread, and then it becomes a, a little rope. And then all of a sudden, now your, 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 your soul is engaged in life, and you're engaged with the world, and the world is engaged with you. And uh, I think it's rituals are so, so critical for that. Father, yes. uh, if you could give one piece of advice, one, I always ask my guests when they come right before we close the show, 
if they could give one bit of advice, one bit of wisdom from your life experience, uh, what would it be? Well, I would tell each of you, if I was sitting right in front of you, you are more loved than you can possibly realize. I just invite you to connect with that love so that you can always remember who you are and can live your life to the fullest. When you experience that, you will know true joy. God bless you. <laughs> well, Father, thank you. Thank you for that blessing, and thank you for being on the show. Uh, really, it's just been an honor. I wish I can't believe how fast these shows go. And uh, just thank you for taking time out of your day. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, Blessings folks. Thank you. Uh, all right, folks, uh, we are finished for today. Uh, the council will be back in a couple weeks with another fantastic show. Thank you for spending your time with us uh, here today. And thank you for uh, KUHS again for ho hosting us and uh, for being a part and taking time out of your day uh, to listen to what we have to say here on the council. Uh, the council is adjourned. May you all be well. May you all be free of pain and suffering. May you all be whole. Uh, we will see you in a couple weeks. God bless. Folks on the international camera, thank you for tuning in. We are finished with the show. We are just about to end. Thank you so much. And we will be back in just a couple of weeks. Uh, tune in to the council. God bless. Come in my life